Hi, I'm Anjan Agpal. Since we finished our podcast, Brokers, Bagmen, and Moles, we've received so many emails and messages on social media that expressed enthusiasm and support for the podcast. We are so grateful that me and my team at Entropy Media wanted to follow up and give you more insight into the story and the production behind it. So I called the team, packed my bags, and headed back to Chicago, the scene of the crime. Or the scene of the commodities infractions that shouldn't have been crimes, depending whose side you're on. I was joined by our expert traders and executive producers, Tim Hendricks and Kevin Huff of Stretch Productions. Also joining us was Danielle Elliott, our showrunner, David Greasing, co-author of the book Brokers, Bagman, and Moles, and a special guest appearance from none other than Tony T-Bun Bungiorno. Before we get started, I wanted to ask a huge favor of everyone listening. It'll take just a few seconds, and it makes a really big difference in terms of helping our show get discovered by a wider audience. Our episodes have been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times, but so far, we only have a few hundred star ratings on all the major listening platforms. So please, please, please go to our show in the Apple Podcasts app and the Spotify app and leave us a star rating. That's all. Now, without further ado, I give you our first bonus episode, a live discussion panel and Q&A about brokers, bagmen, and moles. Thank you to all of you for coming out on a Tuesday night. I'm Danielle Elliott. I was the showrunner on the podcast with Anjay, Tim, and Stretch. Um, it's really fun to see a lot of the faces that I've been seeing in tape <laughs> for three years at this point. So it was August 2020. I had just come off of a camping trip in Maine, and I get off the trail, and I have this email from Anjay about a very interesting project. I knew that Chicago had markets. I didn't know anything about the markets in Chicago, so that was intriguing in itself. The FBI investigation obviously added a lot of intrigue, but it was really the characters in the, or the people, I should say. A lot of you are in this room, not just characters. I don't think they mind being called characters <laughs> at all. But there was an interview with T-Bun that I think that was the first one I saw, and there was no question I wanted to work on this project. So three years later, here we are. With us tonight, we have Anjay, the trusted host of our podcast, who I don't think had any idea he was going to become an investigative journalist when the pandemic Definitely started. No clue. <laughs> We have David Greasing, who wrote the book that started this entire project. And then we have Tim and Stretch, who are close friends all the way back since high school, who had the original idea for this podcast, and I think really became the heart and soul of the whole show. So... No doubt. <laughs> So I was thinking we would start where all of this started, when it first came across David's desk, honestly. How did that happen? Well, 
It first came across my desk late in the afternoon whenever the story broke and the Tribune uh, had this huge January 19th, 1989. <laughs> Thank you. 4 p.m. It's, for me, it's 33 years ago, 34 years ago, I guess. But, you know, I'll never forget. It was one of the most devastating moments in my journalism career because our competition had this huge story and we kind of had nothing. And so... Chasing that story at the Chicago Sun-Times, which we threw all that we had against this story, but the Chicago Tribune threw dozens, if not hundreds, of reporters after the story, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that detail. But anyhow, after the main thrust of the story had run its course, I was approached by a book editor who said that they might be interested in a book about this, and would I be interested in working with another reporter they already had, had re, uh, approached my co-author Lori Morris about about this and uh, the two of us decided to go ahead and pursue this together and to tell the story not just in terms of the investigation itself but the investigation within the broader context of the history of the Chicago markets and various corners and other episodes in their history as well as how the story was covered and what the regulatory environment was and try to tell the whole story, um, which uh, we did, but also we didn't do in that our story stopped really at the trials and at the beginning of the trials, we were able to add an appendix with some of the verdicts in it. But the great thing about the podcast is it carries well beyond what happened at trial and rounds out the story in ways that our book written in the moment, I think did not quite do. Uh, it's interesting to hear you say that because I, I think that was one of the things that interested me in it is that there was no final public record of what happened. So that was one of the things that yeah. for sure got me into it. Which now is there and, and changes perspective on, on what the tone of the book, I think, is, is where, you, where you came probably lands with a different sort of impression than we did. And I think some of the conclusions that are implied in the, your coverage... Are, are valid based on the information that came to light in some of your reporting. And I think we'll get into it later, but I think even the conclusions we came to are different from where you started. So there's been so many iterations of final notes, I think, on this story. <laughs> um, how did it first, I know the story, of course, but and I think we covered it in the first episode, but how did it get to you? Yeah. Well, Tim and Stretch had been wanting to do something about the trading floor, and I, I always agreed because I, I worked there for a few years, and I distinctly remember one of my last days before I moved to L.A. and went to grad school of just looking around the floor and being like, this place is crazy. It shouldn't exist. And, and I was like, we've got to somehow, someday, you know, tell stories about this place. And so many years later, Tim and Stretch... Uh, looked me up, and uh, we started talking about maybe doing a TV show or something based on this world. And, uh, you know, they had some good ideas. Um, but basically, you know, they were, we were kind of thinking about how do we develop a story about the trading floor in the 90s and the 2000s. And then just kind of casually one day, Stretch mentioned, uh, like, oh, yeah, it's like that one bit, you know, it's like that FBI uh, investigation. And I was like, what do you mean, the FBI investigation? He's like, yeah, there was a big FBI investigation in the floor in the 80s, and 
you know, they said it was a big deal, and a bunch, all the traders said they didn't, they didn't bust anyone, and it wasn't a big deal, and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, wait, what? How did I not know this story existed? Somehow worked there, and I'm sure I probably heard it once or twice while I was there and didn't process it, but, you know, the more I, I, I didn't realize that, that this FBI investigation ever actually happened in the couple of years that I worked there, and then when it, the more I learned about it, I was like, oh, well, that's our story. That's our entry into this world because it's got a lot of the kind of classic Hollywood trappings, right? You have a fish out of water story with these FBI agents thinking they're coming into, uh, you know, a kind of Wall Street type environment, but instead they get these guys. Um, and, you know, just a lot of kind of things that lent itself to kind of classic, you know, Hollywood screenwriting techniques. And, and, and I was also just so interested in the story itself. And, um, and then we kind of just decided that that was the path. And then we came across David's, David and Lori's book. And um, yeah, that was kind of the, the genesis of it. I would like to jump in real quick and say that uh, I agree almost with everything you say, except that is the greatest place in the world is one of these exchange floors. You meet the greatest people. And the one thing that you, you always have is a, your word is your bond on that floor. And there's no other business that you could walk in and you had to be true to your trade and the best people in my life I have met on that floor. So it still should be around to this day. Agreed. And uh, what Andre was talking about is something that really caught my attention too, because it, it shocked me to hear that he had worked on the floor and never heard about this investigation, but it honestly just surprised me that this investigation had existed at all and wasn't sort of common knowledge for everyone. Like, how does the FBI spend four years undercover and no one has ever really heard the investigation existed? And I'm curious, this is for Tim and Stretch, but in the years after the FBI left, did things actually change on the floor? Like, did you feel a difference at all? <laughs> um, just one thing is the dual trading. You know, they the, the exchange did certain things to to save face uh, with the clients, and they and they needed to, but they got rid of dual trading soon after that uh, in certain pits, certain levels. I mean, they the things that were pointed out as uh, wrongdoings. Um, was a standard practice like you heard throughout the podcast and that really didn't change it was you you know it's a community of of great people helping each other and every client was the beneficiary you know they benefited from the way we did business and um, so the dual trading was big I'm sure a lot more compliance came on throughout the years but it wasn't broken it wasn't broken and it was uh, the best way to for price discovery yeah, I was in the 30-year bond pit at the time, and um, was the biggest futures pit in the world, so to speak. But um, they had such a small impact in that pit. I think there was one FBI agent in there, and he was down at the bottom of the pit. And guys who traded in the pit, they know, like, if you're on the bottom, it's hard to make an impact. It's hard to get to the people you maybe want to reach. And after they left and the investigation was over, I feel like, like, outside of some regulatory stuff, there was no no impact in the bond pit itself, and business just went on as usual. There was one or two traders that they tried to convict, but it didn't go anywhere, and so I think for us in the bond pit, it just went on business as usual, and it wasn't a big impact uh, after the investigation was over. I, I agree with everything Tim is saying, but I think that one thing that changed over time also, in addition to dual trading, was um, 
creating a tighter audit trail. And I don't want to get too deep into the details, but there were other measures that made it so that the, the people that took advantage of the system previously were slowly weeded out because it was easier to catch if you were doing egregious stuff later on after the fact, manipulating your trading cards and all that kind of stuff. So I don't want to get too into the weeds on trading, but there were, you know, there were a couple of things that happened, I think, over time. And part of it was also forced by technology or whatever, but you know, the system was, was, there was honest people, there were a few dishonest people, and the, the dishonest people were, I, I feel like, slowly rooted out over time to where the fact, by the time I got there, there was some, you know, I didn't really see anything, any egregious anything, right? It just, that, it was gone by the time I got there. So for can, sure, can I can I ask um, what about at the close? Did things change at all? Because a lot of the allegations arose from trading kind of on the curb after the close. What they did was added the curb period, right? They actually added a few minutes there, so you could settle out all your trades, which made sense. Yeah, there was there was a, a curb session to uh, to trade or settle some things up. Right. So. Th and was that didn't really make much of a difference? It just kind of made something official. Oh yeah, no, it, it helped. Yeah. It helped uh, clean up. You know, as a broker, if you missed a couple, you know, you you had to. You didn't want to carry the position overnight, so the curb session helped uh, take care of that kind of stuff. So this is definitely bringing back memories for me of debates Anjay and I might have had during some of our edit sessions of how technical we needed to get and how much people needed <laughs> to understand about dual trading and what actually changed to understand that. Essentially, not much changed. Four years of investigating didn't lead to that many changes on the floor. Um, but I kind of want to shift directions a little bit and just say, when you guys started this, did you ever think it would take as long to report out this story? No. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. No, actually, uh, Anjay gave us a little, uh, you know, Cooled our, you know, we were ready to go right away, and he, you know, he gave us the, uh, the, L.A. story, and, and kind of slowed the, the roll. But, I mean, it actually it was what like five years, but I I, I always go back to, uh, the T Bun um, interview, and I just never even thought it would get to there. And when when you rented that flat or the, the apartment. And uh, we sat in there. I'm like, this is, you know, I looked at Stretch. I'm like, this, this is happening. We're, we're getting somewhere. And then that interview, uh, like you said, just uh, kind of really got us going into, I think we got something here. And I just want to throw some context into that. This was, I think you guys really got going in March of 2020. So in a way, it takes, it always takes a while to tell a story. But there was somehow the pandemic created this opportunity to actually focus on it. And to get out here, like I was impressed by how many interviews you got early in the pandemic because there was yeah. nothing else going, I think. Right. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I went, uh, you know, I, I was, I resigned from my last job March 12th of 2020. So that was pretty crazy timing. Uh, I was left with nothing to do. I went from doing uh, none of my childcare, cooking, cleaning to all of it because my wife was working. And so I immersed myself in the story. And, um, but it wasn't, I think we did the first interviews in like June, July. Um, but, but I also think that was too soon because it, it takes time to actually figure out how you're going to tell a story as complex as this. And 
you really need to kind of think through how it's all going to sound, how it's all going to, you know, who are the subjects, who can you get access to. Um, and I know people don't like to hear that LA story, but it's a real thing. Developing a story and telling it the right way is very hard. Um, and it takes, you know, sometimes years, sometimes decades for things to get from an idea to, to being out in the world. Um, and this is, you know, again, this is a really complex story. And, and, you know, I think with your impartial point of view made it so, uh, you helped so much in, in telling us, you know, in helping to tell the story in a way that like people can understand it and it wasn't overly confusing, but there was just enough information. Um, and so by the way, the reason, you know, we talked about that, Danielle talked about why she decided to work on the story, but the question of why I decided to email her was because during said pandemic, I'd watched a documentary series that was preceded by a podcast. Um, and the two, the way the podcast worked is that the podcast came out and then the documentary came out right after it. And Danielle worked on both. And they were told so well that I was like, that's incredible. Whoever's brain had a part in making this thing, uh, you know, I would love to work on our show because that's what we also want to do. We also want to make documentary and scripted series and things like that and and Danielle really helped helped shape all that so um, I, I sought her out and she she responded which was amazing well if we're gonna have a love fest here um, the 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 uh, the work that Anjay put in in the research uh, going to the Dirksen Federal Building which nobody wants to go to that fucking place and uh, he would go, and, and I don't know how many hours you spent there, but if Stretch and I did a podcast, it would be like uh, a cartoon uh, compared, compared to what this turned out to be. So the research, nobody uh, saw how much you did, uh, except we did, and that was amazing. And I think having David's, it was amazing. It, like you were completely in it all the time. Um, but I think having David's book, David and Lori's book, I should say, as a roadmap was incredible and was what allowed us to actually get started when we could. Um, it was a roadmap. It broke down things that um, really haven't been published anywhere else, I would say. And then also Tim and Stretch, I. I don't know if this is true, but it feels like you know everyone in Chicago. So it was truly like, if Pretty there was true. someone in David's book, we could ask one of the two of you Anybody to make a that's call. ever been in a bar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it definitely made it possible to make it a lot faster than it otherwise might have been. Um, there was one, um, just to start to get into some of these stories, there was one interview that Anjay and I and Chris and um, a couple other people in this room actually only got in, was it March? I think it was the middle of March. The podcast, the series was already out, um, but we hadn't finished making it yet. Is that right? No, we, we hadn't released it. We were about to. We were about to release and it. And I was having a mental breakdown because we hadn't figured out episode 12 yet. We needed and a then, 12. Yeah. And our original plan for an ending actually, as is often happens with an investigative story, didn't, the story wasn't what we thought it was when we started. Um, and we needed an episode 12. And I was coming to Chicago for something. And I was like, do you mind if I just send this one more email to see if Tom Durkin will sit for an interview. And Andre was like, I've tried for years, give it a shot. And I think he responded and was like, oh yeah, I got your email two years earlier. I just <laughs> forgot to respond. So we thought this whole time that he was dodging us. He actually just saw the email and didn't respond as we all do sometimes. But it meant that in March, just this March, we got the interview that really 
pulled everything together, in my opinion. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, along the way, too, hats off to everybody we interviewed who sat down from T-Bond to Ray Pace, Louis Borsellino, Jeff Kilberg, who's on CNBC, you know, Tim Ryan, AKA Beef, uh, David, Lori, uh, Crawford, the uh, reporter from the Tribune. I mean, everybody sat down willingly and were great interviews and all that kind of helped along the way. Even, you know, it took a couple years to put together, but, um, you know, that helped a lot. Everybody's willing to sit down and tell this story, right? Like we wanted to tell the story from the trader side, a point of view, um, and, you know, even the FBI guys who willing, you know, ended up willingly sit down, but I feel like we had that little leverage of like, hey, we're going to tell this story, whether you guys will like it or not, if you want to tell your side of the story, you know, kind of thing. So even getting those guys to sit down was kind of yeah, crazy. Yeah, but it took forever. Forever. Uh, I was going to say, uh, Stretch, you sound like an investigative reporter. That's exactly how it works. You get everything you need, and then you go, yeah, you know, this story may not reflect that great on you. If you talk, it might help a little bit. So... I mean, the whole time I think we were like, there's no way these FBI guys are going to sit down and talk to you know, us, right? Honestly, like, by the way, David, is, is, that is like, I, we got that pro tip from him and Danielle as well, who have obviously done this before. And, you know, we use those kind of tactics. It was like, okay, ship is sailing. You know, we're going to tell the story. You're either going to decide to be in it or not. And you got to make that kind of devil's bargain of, of am I going to talk and take a chance on how they're going to edit this or not? Um, and they three of the three of them did, but we talked to actually three other, or at least two other agents. One of whom was the main case agent who who masterminded the whole thing, and another one who just felt like he 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 had got the most guilty convictions and didn't want to talk because he felt he had done a lot of damage to people. Yeah, the one who was the first one on the case who had lived in, what was the town in Illinois? I forget the name of the town. You were always like, I cannot imagine having to live there for... Very far southern Illinois. Yeah, so he had done his training there. Um, but he, yeah, he just felt like he didn't... I, I would still like to get him for a film or a series, but he didn't want to be a part of the podcast. But it was really interesting to see the way the agents still respected the kind of order of the FBI. Like, they would not... None of them would speak to us individually until they all agreed that it was okay to participate in the project. Um, we had, yeah, this hour and a half Zoom call. I think Tim and Stretch might have also been on it, right, with the agents. And um, what did you think of us getting the agents? What did you think, Tim? Uh, it was it was great. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I love those guys. Stretch, what do you guys say? <laughs> yeah, I concur. Um, it was great getting those guys. Again, it took them like a year, right, before they were willingly sat down. And we're like, uh, more than that. We were like, there's no way these guys are going to talk. But again, we had, to, I think, a little bit of leverage of like, hey, we're telling the story and we're from the Board of Trade. We're all traders. We're telling the trader side of the story. You guys don't have to speak, but if you want to, this, this story's coming out. And all of a sudden, they're like, all three willingly sat down and welcomed our crew into their homes. They were more than, yeah, they were, they were so nice to us. And honestly, I, I give them a lot of credit for participating when they don't have to. I mean, remember when we showed up and they would, they would all come out and, and welcome us and like, welcome to my house. This is my family. And, and they were just very gracious with their time. And I mean, it was, it was a big education for me realizing that they weren't necessarily the shot callers. They were doing their job and they did it to the best of their ability and there was a way higher level people in play. There was way more high level politics going on than I ever imagined when I started this. 
and I didn't learn that until after we interviewed them. They had bosses, and their bosses had bosses. Where did they get their football picks? <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know, but apparently they were pretty good. Right, T-Bun? <laughs> it's a good segue to get T-Bun yeah. up here and I tell us what he Who wants to hear from T-Bun? <laughs> Is that a Miller Light in your hand? All right, T-Bun. What did you think about your interview? It wasn't bad. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I said the truth, you know, how it all went about, and it was all bullshit that they were down there. And... You know, they went down there looking for something that they couldn't find. And so they had all this fucking money, I mean, all this money involved in getting these people. But so now, after a year and a half, two years, we have to justify we spent a lot of money trying to get these guys. Let's make it happen. And they have bullshit. That's all. You can swear. We'll, we'll bleep it out in post. Hi. To me, one of the things that stuck out about the investigation was that it, it didn't seem like they had as much evidence or as much proof of what they thought was going on as, as in most other FBI investigations, right? Like, how did they get this to the green light? How did they get to spend so much time and money on an investigation that they weren't really sure would yield great results or, or that they would be able to prove it. And I think that was the biggest thing that they, once they got to court, proving the things they saw on the floor or some of the things they saw was not easy. But what they saw on the floor was everything that went on every day for, uh, whatever, 80 years, a place been open. Well, Ray, Ray says it well, right? It's commodity infractions. Yeah. Not federal that crimes. All, that's all it is. When you went to orientation, they never told you you can't do this, you can't do that. They're all bullshitters. So now when they put him in there because someone beefed on somebody to say, hey, they're corrupt down there at the Merck, and they put these guys in a the pit, they were nitwits. That's like if I put you into a, a car lot and said, find out the guy who's Stealing the mufflers. You wouldn't know what the fuck you're doing because you're from L.A. <laughs> Very true. Right? Very true. And that's the truth. I don't know shit about mufflers, So they put guys. these three that was all over the place to try to find out what was happening. And these guys had me standing there like, holy fuck, what the fuck am I doing? And they're FBI agents. Well, they even said that. They said... You know, it didn't take long once we got down there oh, to figure out I mean, this was going to be hard to prove. And them, them guys were nitwits. Believe me when I'm telling you. They didn't have a clue. So somebody brought up the investigation getting approved at the highest levels. And one of the things that I found very interesting about the podcast was the origin of the investigation. Because as you pointed out, there are numerous stories. Based on our reporting, we did believe it started with Archer Daniels Midland, and they had gotten on the wrong side of some trades and thought, we're getting screwed by people on the floor, and they sick the FBI on them. I think they did, tr didn't, they did train the, the guy who traded in the bean pit. And so ADM was involved, but you had other origin stories that I thought were quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, actually, after we started publishing the uh, podcast <laughs> and episode 12 was written, 
we received some interesting documents that Danielle had filed for a couple years previously, and they were kind of mind-blowing. A lot of them were redacted, right? There was a lot of stuff that was redacted on there, you know, black marker drawn through. But they left open some really interesting things for us, and, and they were about the, the origin of the investigation. Where there were two stated objectives of the investigation. One was about, obviously, finding traders who are you know, breaking law and stealing from customers. And the second stated objective of the FBI's case was to investigate organized crime, drugs, and uh, illegal gambling on the floor. And so that was a stated objective early on. We didn't get too deep into those documents because, again, we'd kind of already written it, but we alluded to it at the end of episode 12. And then so we, we know for sure that it wasn't just about catching these crooked traders. It was also about a lot of the other things that were happening down there, a lot of the other influence that was there. And there was a certain element of a fishing expedition to it, for sure. And also that they were after the people at the very top of the exchanges. And not only did they knock it to the top, but they were stuck in the bottom of the pit. I mean, they never really made it very far out of the bottom of the pits, which is the least valuable real estate in a commodities exchange, right? Yeah, and like I think Dietrich Volk talks about it very well, and not all of it made it into the episode, unfortunately, because, I mean, his interview is amazing. If we could play that whole interview, I don't know, maybe we'll put that stuff on Patreon one day, but his, his entire interview is, like, mind-blowing um, in such a great way about his, his life story, his time at the Merck and everything. But anyway, I digress. Dieter's interview, he, he talked a lot about that, and, and, and he even com- compared it to, he said, you know, it's like infiltrating the mafia. It takes time to get up there. It takes time to get up the rungs of the ladder. And, and you know, if we had had more time, maybe we would, we'd have done it, but just, just couldn't, you know. And there's a lot of kind of anecdotal stories, some in your book, others in articles and things like that, about certain traders, certain high-level people at, at different companies, just trying to stop the flow of information, trying to stop the cooperation with the FBI and doing so in certain ways that were really fascinating. So yeah, it definitely feels like there's also a concerted effort to, all right, we're going to cut this off down here. It's not going to get any higher. And, and that's what happened. I can't interrupt you for just one second. But when you say like they want to organize crime, they want mafia figures, these are guys that went from high school down to the Merck, became runners. Was their uncles or grandparents or great-grandfathers associated with the mob? I mean, get the fuck out of here. I get the fuck, you know, seriously. The guy put his kid down there to be a runner, making $80 a week. Oh, like, no, it, it don't happen. I mean, that's just the stupidest thing in the world, that organized crime ran the Merck. No, was the guys who was associated with outfit figures? Yeah, okay. It was a grandkid. It was a nephew. It wasn't uh, all of a sudden we're going to go in there like the Gotti family and run the whole market. Nah, nah, it ain't going to happen. The fuck? Crazy people. Nah. They wanted to make it like something like, oh, they're uh, laundering money for the mob. Laundering money for the mob. Guys would lose 20000 30000 a day. That their uncle was an outfit guy. Oh well, how are they wondering? Well, they right, that's it. what they were. You know, that's what they were. They were trying to see if there were any connections. Yeah, well, those okay. Well, when yeah. he lost thirty thousand, I'm sure his uncle wasn't too happy. 
That's all. <laughs> well, you talk about the origins of the, uh, the investigation, right? So you're like, you had disgruntled farmers, supposedly, in the Midwest complaining about fills or complaining about the, the execution of orders in the corn pit or soybean pit. The first two FBI guys, the first place they go stand is in front of Louis Borsellino in the S&P pit, nowhere near the corn pit or the soybean pit. So you're kind of like, what was these guys' angle? And why you, you're standing in front of Lewis, who's a legit guy, right? Like, he's making money, losing money, legit, whatever his connections were. But, like, why you go stand in front of Lewis Borsellino, who told him to get the fuck out of there? So like, you're not standing in front of me. I don't know who you guys are. Like, the origins of this thing was disgruntled farmers. It doesn't make sense, right? And you go stand in front of Lewis at the Merck in the S&P yeah. future pit? You know, it makes no sense. And I really loved the way that a couple of the agents stuck to their story so solidly. Like, they just continued to say that it had nothing to do with investigating organized crime at all. But not all of the agents stuck to that story. So we got very lucky, I think, in actually getting to the root of what was going on. Yeah, I mean, that's what we were able to, to figure out in hindsight, right? Many years later with people talking, with getting these documents that took forever to get. After, after doing all the research, you're like, yeah, this, doesn't, this doesn't all add up. Like, Listen, Andre, would you out. invest all the money that they invested in that operation to put them down there for two, a year and a half or two years, whatever they were down there for? You have to come up with something. Of course, that's so how, that's how they are go, all the time. Oh, right? I mean, this guy's uncle was a, a outfit guy in Chicago. Oh, his his father was a hitman. No, you have to find something because you you know what? You spend millions of dollars to do something that all of a sudden you ain't got shit. Now you better fucking make something up. T so, Bun, let me ask you something. Do you think it's that that there's other FBI investigations that also went? go the same way, where they spend a lot of money and don't, don't come up with a ton? I don't know. I'm not an FBI yeah. agent. <laughs> but all I know is they spend a lot of fucking money for nothing. And they put guys in jail for nothing because they had to justify what the fuck they did. You spend, you spend $10, 15000000 million on an operation, you better get some convictions. They got guys for $87.50. Get the fuck out of here. Seriously. So, David, or sorry, David, I'm curious. Did you guys, did you guys go into that angle when you, were, when you and Lori were first writing the book? Was this part of your initial investigation? Our investigation was to try to find out how the, in their, the FBI investigation was conducted, what led to the investigation, what the response was in the markets, what the uh, exchanges did to try to do damage control. And like I said earlier, it's like the, the trials were going on as we were reporting and writing. And there were convictions, let's not forget. There were a lot of acquittals, but there were convictions. There were some people pled guilty. So whatever T-Bone and other may think of the quality of the charges, there was... Of, there were findings of illegal conduct down there, and some of the changes that were made, you know, probably benefited the markets in the long run, even though they were, I agree, the changes were on the margins. And I have to imagine you had a much harder time than we did getting people to talk, because we had the benefit of 30 years of space. Right. Yes, um, it was, although what you did shouldn't be minimized. To get FBI agents to talk, even about cases that are 30 years old, is not easy. So. Congrats to you on, 
on that part of it. But you're right. I mean, when they're testifying at trial, they're certainly not going to be talking to uh, journalists. But we did get access to the FBI reports. We had interviews with uh, some of the traders who were charged, not always for attribution, but uh, we did get people to talk with us. We also had interviews with exchange officials. Uh, Leo Malamed threw us out of his office at one point. He didn't like our line of questioning. Um, uh, so um, we had some memorable experiences in, in, reporting, um, in reporting the book. Yeah, just one thing, I mean, about what T-Bone is saying, like, I think that if you, the more you learn about FBI investigations and governmental investigations in general, people get caught in the crossfire all the time. Let's put it that way. I'm not saying it's ever right, but uh, that, that does happen. And that's, that's part of the reason why people make podcasts, why people do investigative journalism is to expose those stories and tell those stories of, of injustice, right? So, And I think one of the turning points for us in the storytelling was when we did get access to the trial transcripts. And it was really interesting because we're talking about some of the things that we only learned in the course of reporting, but a lot of them were sitting right there in the trial transcripts that had been... I don't know where the storage facility is. It was 30 boxes that were very dusty when we got to, is the Dirksen building? Is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. What were the biggest surprises for you when we looked through those? There were several, but I, I would honestly say the biggest was that it was definitely clear that certain people were getting the book thrown at them while not being big offenders of you know violating the trading rules. And then there were others that you know admitted to you know, taking advantage of the system much more than I ever knew happened. And it's all there in the trial transcript. So, yeah, that, that's it. And then, and then some, of the things that, some of the things that we had hunches about, like investigating the organized crime, like whether they were ever even doing it was never, you know, was always in doubt. And so it became clear in trial, transcript, trial transcripts, for sure. David, was there anything that surprised you when you listened to the podcast? Well, the... Uh the Durkin memo, I, I had been unaware, and I'll, I'll let you all tell it because you found it and um, know it much better than me. And Tom Durkin is this, even back then, was a very high-profile lawyer who um, had come out of the U.S. Attorney's Office, as often happens, and then became a leading member of the defense bar. And you were talking about two years went by or so be between when you first reached out to him and he uh, finally talked. And I would add that one of the reasons perhaps that he didn't respond to your queries was that he was busy in defending one of four defendants in one of the most high profile cases in Chicago in recent years, the, the ComEd 4 trial, which, which was a, a case that opened the door to public corruption in the state of Illinois under the then longest serving House Speaker Michael Madigan. And so he had his hands full probably, so I don't want to make excuses for any lawyer who doesn't get back to journalists. They should do it right away all the time. But that might have been one of the reasons he wasn't talking. But there were a number of different revelations. The, the perspective that T-Bon and others are sharing about what it looked like from inside the pits when all this was going on. But, but the Durkin memo and, and the argument that Tom Durkin made, I thought was to me the, the single biggest revelation. And Stretch, I want to. I have a question for you. Uh, I know making a show about this entire world was originally your idea. What gave you that idea? How did you know this would be a popular one? Um, 
obviously I worked out in trading for for 20 years, and then I moved out to Los Angeles in 2004. Had a couple friends out there, and they were writers. And as we're sitting around at night having beers and doing whatever, I'm telling stories about the training floor, just reminiscing. And they're like, God, it sounds like a TV show. And they're like, you keep telling stories, and we're going to start writing stuff down. And so as that uh, progressed, we was like, maybe we do an hour-long drama on cable, HBO kind of thing. And so over the years, sometimes we'll be sitting on a shelf, and sometimes I dust it off and try and, you know, I'm not a writer by any means, but I had some stories to tell. And then all of a sudden, Tim and Anjay, we all kind of got together, and we were, you know, we were still maybe trying to do an hour-long drama, and then it kind of, we stumbled upon, uh, upon David's book, Brokers, Bagman, and Moles, and that's when Anjay was like, maybe we should do a podcast kind of about this FBI story, and that would be our way into this world. And so that kind of would, you know, but it was, it's been about a 15-year, you know, process for me, you know, off and on, so to speak, and just kind of brought us to this moment as we're sitting around doing a Q&A and the podcast is out and doing well and um, so yeah it's it's pretty exciting journey but a long long fucking journey <laughs> <laughs> I mean I still I think there's still a lot of stretch stories that we haven't had a chance to share uh, yeah there's we all have stories in this room to I think share, we'll save but, those uh, for the scripted series yeah we'll unless you want to the movie or the scripted series yeah yeah we have we had some questions from that were sent to us but why don't we ask everyone in the audience first if they have any questions and ask whatever you want. We're not afraid. Uh, Uncle, yeah. Uncle Frank. <laughs> you remember that's when Ivan Boski got in trouble with the late 80s, or the early 80s, and they thought with the Board of Trade and the Murph, oh, it happens there, it must be happening in Chicago. Now. And nothing could be further from the truth. If you're a broker, you cannot, you would never cheat your customers. You lose the business. Yeah. And they got bills they never deserved, customers. But then, you know what, somebody stepped out for you and you'd make it back to them, not stealing from your customer, but whatever, it, it had to be like that. One hand washed the other. And trading after the bell, everybody was in the same boat. We're all trying to get out. Who got hurt? Some customers got filmed that they didn't deserve. And they're like, like they said, the brokers are trying to get out of it for them. So I never, re and I was down there for 35 years, I never really, you know, there were some guys you knew were terrible, but their reputation was shot. And like Tim said, you lived on your reputation. If your reputation was good, it was good. If you had that reputation, and if you reneged on a trade, you never got another trade again. That was a long question, but, but uh, I mean, I, I'm gonna just answer what you said at the beginning, which is, you know, asking about Ivan Boski and Michael Milliken, and I, there's definitely something to that. There was a lot of uh, FBI investigations into white-collar crime in the 80s in New York. Most of those findings were much, 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 much bigger from a dollars, you know, stolen, ripped-off perspective, different, you know, total, total schemes that people were cooking up that were just totally fraudulent, right? This is a, a totally different case, um, but, but it was... I think it was one of the FBI agents themselves kind of admitted like, yeah, we were on a roll with white collar crime in the 80s and thought this would be just another one of those stories. And then it ended up being not that. Right. <laughs> All right, who else has a question? Oh, this Hi, my name is Tom Garneri. I was at the Mid-America Commodity Exchange from 1978 until 1980 as a silver broker. 
And then I spent 1980 till present at the Chicago Board of Trade as a soybean broker. I knew all the soybean guys that uh, were all convicted. I guess my family goes way back. I'm a direct descendant of the Cashman family, big name at the Board of Trade, very well respected. What bothers me is they introduced RICO in a situation where it was ridiculous. And the reason they did is because they did that, the government could try everybody together. Nobody was separate. If you took each one of those Board of Trade guys from the bean pit and you tried them separately on the evidence that was available for each of those guys on the tapes, I guarantee you all the guys that were guilty were the ones that already turned and testified against the guys that were not guilty. I have a friend of mine that I shared an office with who went to jail for four and a half years with two kids. And you know how much money he stole? Three trades and he lost $7,800 because he made a mistake in the pit turned to a guy and hit, hey, buy it here, sell it here, and, and he lost money on it because he didn't want to look like a bad guy to his customer. It's a terrible thing what they did. They changed a lot of lives. And I have a personal stake in this because I lost two family members to suicide because of this investigation who had, later we found out, mental illness. But without this investigation, they may have survived. And it's a terrible thing, and I don't, I don't care what the government tells you. I don't care what Vogel said, what Carlson said. And here's a personal note. Carlson came up to me when he was working for ADM. I was a bean broker in the middle of the bean pit. I filled for Cargill, Dreyfus, Bungie. I had a lot of co uh, commercial customers. So he came down, he's standing next to me, and it's kind of slow about 11 o'clock, and he asked me, he said, he said, yeah, what do you see in the deck? I said, you know, I'd expect that, that question from a Merrill Lynch or a Dean Witter, but not from an ADM guy. He said, get the fuck out of my face. I never talked to that guy again. And I, I relayed the story to Andre after the thing was done, and he said, did you suspect he was an FBI agent? I said, no, I thought he was just an asshole, you know? <laughs> and I did, I, you know, I don't know, the guys knew on the floor, but he went after guys, a guy by the name of Bruce Middlestadt, who was, an, the only commercial guy he had was ADM. He stood in the bean pit, the sweetest guy you'd ever want to meet, and straight as could be. Well, this guy would come in and ask him to fill orders after the close. We're stuck, we're stuck, you know, and he's an, it, that's his only commercial client. He's got kids at home. This is, his, this is bread and butter. Yeah, sure, I'll take care of it, I'll take care of it. And they went and got him. They, they you know, ruined the guy. For what? So I, th I think you're, you're, you're talking a little bit about entrapment and, and, you know, the FBI agent forcing someone to, potentially forcing someone to do something that they wouldn't normally do in order to get them to, to, to commit a crime so that they can get someone, right? You're absolutely right. Yeah. Your one FBI agent kind of, in your podcast, gave a little bit of an idea of what you need to avoid entrapment. The other thing I didn't like is your agent said, uh, we had four agents going to four different places in four different pits, and they all found the same thing. So therefore, it wasn't just 5% of the people that were bad. It was widespread. We would have found it anywhere. That's a bunch of bullshit. That's right. Both right. You came in the middle of a bean pit. You're not going to get anything. You're not going to find it with me. You're not going to find it. I, I'll tell you what. Guys, hold on. So, anyway, my question is, yeah. why is the government allowed such yeah. well, the, leeway the, on This is why we make the podcast, though. To, to try to, you know, understand the government methods, question them, and it's kind of an amazing thing. We actually are able to do that here yeah, well, in this country where questioning the government like that doesn't go over so well in a lot of other places. So, you know, I think we had issues with, and I had issues with, with the way things were done, and that's why we made the podcast. And so, you know, I'm agreeing with, with the things you're saying um, in, in, in general. And I, I don't know if you are saying that we, we report something different, but, you know, as a documentarian, as a journalist, and David and Danielle can tell this better than anyone, 
we're just, you know, we're talking to people and getting their stories. And right. we're, we're understanding, we're trying to understand all points of view right. without being too partial one way. We, we I, let people talk, right? Absolutely. And I think that's the only way you're going to get the truth is to let people talk. And those people that are listening decide what they believe. You know? and, and we tried to highlight a lot of those stories in the podcast. I think Ray Pace probably embodies that more than anyone else in terms of, and that's why he came in and out of the podcast I, so often and was in the last episode as well yeah. as, you know, we can't talk to all the victims, right? We right. can't talk to all the people who are wrongly convicted. So, you know, we use Ray as that archetype of someone who was convicted of crimes that weren't very big. They were tiny. They were, you know, ridiculous. But, I, yeah, so... I so. think another thing, too, is if you look at this, this was the most expensive investigation ever conducted by the FBI. I think it was the biggest failure, too. So well, it... it there, by the way, there, were, there have been a lot more expensive since. So, <laughs> a lot more. I appreciate what There's you guys There's an at-the-time asterisk. I appreciate you to get out there, and, and I don't know how big of an audience are still interested in the 1988 crap, but I, I appreciate it. I, I read your book. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, I think you did the best you could with the information that you had. And had you talked to me, I think there would have been a couple more fucking chapters. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Do we have any other? Younger than Kevin Dreyer, when all this work was being done, did you have a different, like, perception of what was going on? Were you surprised at what they experienced versus what you experienced down there on the floor? No, I, I wasn't surprised. I think I just realized that I came into it after, again, very slow reform and very slow progress had been made. Um, so when I was there, for example, if you did a trade. We still wrote them down on paper, but they had to be turned in and time-stamped like within one minute of, of executing the trades, whereas previously, when, when you started, what was that? When, when did those trades have to get turned in? I found them in my pocket the next day. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Right? So, so the way that trading was done did get a lot more, you know, it, it was easier to, uh, it, it, it was harder to cheat, let's say it that way. It, it was harder to be, uh, you know, to bend the rules. But uh, I, was, I was surprised. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, when I read it, yeah, I didn't know about the investigation. That was one of the things that, that um, definitely surprised me was how easy it was to, if you were crooked, if you were nefarious and you wanted to, you know, to profit for yourself, as the guys here have said, yeah, it's, it, like, it's your reputation. It might cost your reputation, but you could do it if you wanted to. It was, it was there for the taking. And so I, I didn't want to make a judgment on, um, you know, the people that did it or the people that didn't do it. I was more fascinated by, by like, the system that it existed, that it was so easy to manipulate, and it existed like that for a long time. And, you know, it was at least partially engineered to be that way. Was it more rules when you were down there or more, again, like... Yeah, I mean, things were going electronic. When I was there, it was more like things were going more electronic. It was just... It was just way more, I mean, other than describing the audit trail, uh, I don't know how else to describe it. it. It was just harder to, you know, to, to get away with things should you want to. You guys, you're, you're talking about getting away with things, but I think the growth of the industry during the times of the 80s, it exploded. So there wasn't really anything wrong with the system. I mean, there was people, the people that, that provided liquidity were, were risking their own money 
And they were there, and they were there every day providing clients, uh, customers off the floor liquidity. The, it was not broken. I said I had a card in my pocket overnight, but the system wasn't broken. And, uh, I, you know, the FBI found that out. It wasn't broken. Anyone else? Yes, sir. First of all, uh, congratulations, Anjay, Danielle, um, Stretch. Uh, I enjoyed the podcast immensely. It was, it was great. It was, um, you guys should feel very proud. It was, it was beautiful. My, my question is, um, I, I believe during the, the, the podcast, you attempted to contact Leo Malamed and he did not respond? As yes, we did. We contacted, we tried to contact him several times, emails, phone calls, et cetera. And I think he just chose not to uh, participate. It was fun to realize how much uh, Leo has talked in the past. I mean, the <laughs> amount of archival that we had to choose from, you could, we had an interview with him about everything except this investigation, but he's made so many appearances and there's so many recorded. If you look him up on YouTube, you'll just be down a rabbit hole. It's kind of a lot of fun, honestly. And then do we know if he's aware of your podcast? We, we probably have no idea. Yeah. No idea. Okay. No idea. I would, I, would, I would guess he is, but who knows? But we, yeah, and we definitely gave him a chance to talk, and that's, that's the whole thing, giving people a chance to speak. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you can make more money at the Merck or the Board of Trade than you can being a mobster. So why do the feds ever think that someone, that the mob's going to use this to help boost their, uh, what's the theory? Well, well, well um, I think a, a logical answer to it, whether it happened or not is not what I'm talking about, but first of all, as T-Bun T uh, told us, there was a lot of people that were gambling illegally down on the trading floor, and uh, that's, that's uh, one of the, the outfit's big mainstays is, is gambling and making money in gambling, so a lot of your clientele are there. Um, so if you have people around your largest clientele, that might make sense. Um, and as we've heard from many people, uh, the I think, Stretch, you, didn't you tell me about how you used to be able to put cash in your trading accounts and trade with cash and, uh, or, or, you know, deposit cash well, into your yeah, trading your accounts? Yeah, I mean, you could take and cash so, in and out of your yeah. trading account. It wasn't like... Uh, so that's a pretty good way to launder Had money. I lost $3,000, per example, on a weekend, I could just go up to my trading firm and say, give me $3,000 cash, and it was little... It was on the books, but off the books kind of thing, so by no means it was a slush fund, but yeah, you could... You could take cash uh, out of your account with no problem. I mean, yeah. yeah. So you could, if mostly you could me put taking it, out. If you could put cash into an account, trade it, have it touch a bunch of hands, come back into that account, and take it out, you have laundered money. But all all legal. There was nothing wrong with that. But unfortunately for me, it was mostly taking out of the account. <laughs> so again, that's what they were looking for. Didn't, and they didn't find anything like that. They never, they never convicted or they never charged anyone of anything like that, but that's what they told us they were looking for. Obviously, a lot of people were negatively impacted by the investigation and everything that ended up happening. Where do you think the industry would be today if that investigation had never happened? I don't think it would have changed much. I still don't think, you know, there was a few rule changes that were implemented after this. But, you know, I, uh, I was filling until 2020, 
and I filled in 87, the same way I filled in 2020. And uh, besides dual trading, I don't think many of the cameras, they had an eye in the sky that came in pretty soon after that. Um, that actually helped trading, because when you're buying and selling from a different, you know, 50 different people, you, you could go back to the, the the room and check and see, you know, who you may have traded with. You know, I was like, just like I, instant replay change sports. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. No, but I, honestly, I'm glad you said that because it, it's a great question, and I think that the investigation accelerated some change. That change might have been, uh, you know, slower to occur. But at the end of the day, technology was always going to change the markets. Computerized trading was always going to change the markets. Um, you know, and for better or for worse, you can lament it, but things get computerized, and uh, for the most part, that's that 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 is the thing that you know you, you can't stop. But one thing we got to realize is the exchange always, and the people that work there, the members that were part of the exchange, we wanted to take care of the customer. That, 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 that's the whole thing. We keep on going back to that. So, I mean, the rules were going to evolve one way or another to take care of the customer. Or all the people on the floor were going to be out of a job. Yeah, I have a question about uh, the production of the podcast and also probably maybe, David, the book. Um, can you talk about what was involved in writing this for, like, a layman person, making sure things weren't too inside baseball? Like... Because I know a lot of everyone here is people that experience this or know a lot about this. But for me, I think the podcast does a good job of explaining a thing I had no idea about. And I'm just curious how you guys got got there. I would say a lot of it was Anja explaining things to me and me saying, like, that makes sense. That doesn't make sense. This is how we can break it down, at least as far as the podcast went, because there were so many things. Yeah, me writing 10 pages and Danielle being like, we just need these four sentences. <laughs> that's That's all we need. I, honestly, David, I think that the forward in, in the, in the or I don't remember if it was the forward or the first chapter, but you outlined like the rules of the floor. And I thought that was very well broken down for anyone who doesn't know the world of how things work down there. It's its, it's own rules. And yeah, I thought that you did a great job of breaking down what, what futures are, what trading is, and and how kind of deals are done, you know, on the floor between brokers and locals that I thought was a great job, and I, I reference that often in the kind of trying to explain the things in the podcast. Thank, thanks for that, and, and you came up with your own way to tell the story, which I thought also was very clear, especially in order to just hear it and process it is a different sort of challenge for a writer. I used to cover the markets for a general interest newspaper. I, you know, I'm one of the great things about writing for the Sun-Times instead of the Tribune back in those days was when you went down to the floor. Back then, we used to just be able to get on the floor. We we had passes and could just walk onto the floor. And the Sun-Times was more widely read on the floor than the Chicago Tribune was. But it was much more than just traders who were reading about what was going on in the Chicago markets. And so you had to learn how to translate what was happening for a, a reader who might have flipped over from the sports section to find out what was going on in in the pits. And and so the same thing that Andre and Stretch were talking about, about like there are some incredible stories down there, but in order to bring those stories to a broad readership, you had to figure out a way to uh, make it accessible. And so in the book, we started with a pretty, as simple as we could, this is how these markets work. 
and we also played on the dichotomy between the official rules and then the way things were done on the floor, which opened, opened the door to making it all accessible, but also um, I used to think of it as sort of like learning a foreign language, that you, you learned the language of the pits, you needed to understand the language of the pits in order to be a, an effective reporter down there. Um, I never studied futures, I never studied markets, I, I studied basic economics, and, and so just like a trader, a lot of, I grew up in Park Ridge, a lot of friends I went to high school with ended up, I used to run to them on the floor. They just learned by getting in there and trading. Similarly, a writer who is just a, a newspaper reporter going down there, you, you learn how to, you learn in, in that way and you've just got to reverse that in order to tell the story in an accessible way. Hi, uh, great job, loved the podcast, Andre. wonderful job, Tim, great stretch, great job. Became a big fan overnight. I'm curious to know from a producer standpoint, how did you get your subjects comfortable enough to want to talk on these sorts of subjects that may have been painful for them in the past? And how did you portray yourself as someone to be a trusted figure coming from Hollywood that's gonna, you know, where they didn't feel like they were gonna be exploited in some way? Uh, I didn't want to narrate the podcast at all. Everyone told me I had to, so that was that's my uh, story, especially her, and then and, and you know, everyone else. But uh, yeah, never never planned on it. But honestly, just anytime you're producing anything, whether it's a movie, a podcast, or whatever, the best thing to do is surround yourself with talented people, yeah. and then it kind of works out. Um, and so, like, I had no idea how to narrate. We had a great, you know, a, a head of post who was literally a director and just directed me like, no, 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 don't say it like that. Say it like this. Sure. And he was right 99% of the time. So, yeah, that's my answer for, for me. But how, in terms of... And how many, how many guys, when you spoke to them, would give the interview and then call you a day later and go, ah, I don't, <laughs> take it out. I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it anymore. And, and no, uh, none. Most great. were uh, pretty great in terms of their cooperation. And I wouldn't have anyone who... Regretted, no. I don't think. I don't think that. so. I think a couple, a few of them asked if they could have kind of the right to see cuts or hear cuts, uh -huh. and you just say no because you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, but I also think part of the comfort level and the access that we were able to get had a lot to do with Tim and Stretch's relationships with everyone, too. Yeah, I mean, a thousand I think they're percent. such trusted guys that everyone knew they were in good hands with this team. Yeah, and again, that's why Tim, Tim and Stretch are in the episodes. In episode one and episode, you know, in the last episode, uh, Stretch comes back in, and it really is because they were the access, and they, from the trader side, they helped people to trust us, and that was huge. And then one final question was, I know that there's the Archer Daniels Midland sort of, uh, you know, vertical in the story, as well as... Uh, the Louis Porcelino side. You've given interviews in the past that said you were stuck in COVID and trying to figure out the story, and you stumbled across a film. And I'm curious to know if it was uh, the Tasty Trade documentary called Sold, where uh, Louis kind of gives a, a warts and all portrayal of his career on the floor. Yep, that was it. it you know, and that was kind of the crazy part, too, that, you know, again, there was stuff out there in the universe about this you know this trial or some of the things that happened including that documentary but it just had never been all you know 
uh, coalesced into the full story of what happened. So that's what we, we tried to do. But yeah, that was it. And was was Lewis someone that you were like was on your radar to talk to before you saw that documentary, or was it something that you saw and you went, "We got to talk to this guy immediately," and then integrate that story? No, I line. mean, you know, we knew who he was. Yeah. Um, he's, a, he's a large presence, obviously, and sure. someone who's very well known uh, on the floor. So we knew who he was, uh, but. It wasn't. I don't think. I don't. I may, it might have been watching that that made me realize, like, oh, now we have to talk to him, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. Great job. Right. We have to give up the room in a second here, but do you want any any other anything else? Sure. I mean, I think the biggest thing I took away from. I mean, like I said, I didn't know about the markets, but I really didn't understand Chicago very well until it started. And um, Andre and I have talked about some other projects around Chicago, and I just. I've fallen in love with this city through the making of this podcast. So I think you're all very lucky to live here. Um, I don't know. Does anyone else have any other final thoughts? No, this has been a great process. Danielle, Anjay, our sound engineer, Jed, you guys did a great job of telling the story, as everybody has said. Anjay, as our narrator, has done a great job. Tim, uh, you know, sharing his stories. Vinny Provenzano. Hopefully we turn this Q&A into a bonus episode, I believe, maybe. Yes, we will turn this uh, Q&A into a bonus stay episode. stay tuned for some future projects, so hopefully. That. And um, then we are working on putting together a documentary based on the story as well. That Who is playing T-Bun? Go. Richard Gere. Richard Gere. No, Richard Gere. Who else? Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Anyone else? Ah, uh, all right, Joe Pesci. Too sure. Yeah, but hey, movie magic. You can make him look big. Um, I want to thank everyone. Seriously, everyone who came here, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Everyone who listened to the podcast. And then Danielle, David, and Tim especially, and Stretch. Thank you all. You guys were amazing. This is the most fun I've ever had. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a special thanks to our venue, Texan Taco Bar, as well as thanks to our live sound engineer and recorder, Kelly Askham. This has been a production of Entropy Media. I'm your host, Anjay Nagpal. Our guests were Danielle Elliott, Tim Hendricks, Kevin Stretch Huff, and David Greasing. This episode was edited and mixed by Gerard Bauer. Please don't forget to rate our podcast and follow us on social media. You can find us at, at Entropy Media Co. on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or X, or whatever the heck it's called. 